Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers, with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kirk Damon. This episode is sponsored by Whither and Associates Consulting. Three heads are better than one. And welcome, everybody, to episode four of The Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy. I'm your host, Ben Siders, and with me here is Kirk. Thank you again, Kirk, as the captain of the Enterprise. So Unfortunately, epi- this is episode four. Does that make yes. us the first of the prequels? Since this is the fourth episode, this is actually episode one, uh, but there are no children in the studio, so we should be fine. <laughs> okay, that's good. We won't be influenced by them. Although we are going to talk about a children's game, well... Nominally, a children's children's game. game. So uh, we're going to talk about Minecraft today. Uh, Kirk and I both play Minecraft. Uh, My kids play Minecraft. In fact, we have a Minecraft server for uh, the lawyers at our firm that uh, that we run. It's actually down right now. I just found out last night. That's not good. Get it restarted. Yeah, I think I think one of my kids shut off the Linux machine and. (laughs) <laughs> I don't. I don't have it set to auto boot the server when it turns back on. Okay. So, anyway, my my middle son is completely obsessed with Minecraft, and if you haven't played it, uh, well, if you haven't played it, first of all, play it. But uh, what what it is is a, a sandbox style maker game. It's yep. called a survival game. You play a little character in a three D world where everything is defined by large blocks, and you can manipulate and move these blocks to get resources, make things, and just try and survive yeah. the zombies and monsters that come out yeah. at night. In many respects, it's living in Lego. Yeah, it's yeah, it's like living in a Lego land where you're a little Lego guy who can manipulate his environment. It's it's very fun. Um, my my like I said, my middle son is is completely preoccupied by it, and he reads all of these books that are set in the, the Minecraft universe. Minecraft has these monsters like creepers and other creatures that have yeah. uh, sort of unique attributes. I think it's important to point out too, Minecraft for the most part the creatures are pretty generic. They're zombies or skeletons. Yeah. The one that's unique is the creeper. The creeper, yeah. The creeper like, it, it's it's weird. It's this large green cactus looking thing that walks up to you, hisses and explodes. Yeah. And, and in the game it's functions to blow up the stuff you're making so you have to constantly fight them off and yeah. then rebuild it and get more resources. So, uh, but, uh, so my, my boy came home with one, he, he reads all these books set in the universe, and he came home with one that looked kind of cheap, honestly. So I, be- I picked it up to look at it, and it says right on the front, it's an unofficial, unlicensed product, but it has the word Minecraft on the front cover. It has art from the game on the front cover, but it, but it does clearly say it's not an official Minecraft product. And I was just thinking. How are they getting away with that? Like they got a publisher, somebody picked it up. I I assume that these companies have lawyers who advise them on whether you can do this or not. Um, and it just it, it raised my my eyebrow a little bit. And I brought it into Kirk and I said, "What do you think?" And we're like, "Well, yeah. it's a podcast topic now." <laughs> well, and this this ties into I think one of the things that it's at least for me is is one of the sort of I think fascinating areas of IP and one of the ones which is in many respects the most problematic. And that exactly is what can you do with something somebody else created? And there's a general recognition of the fact that you can use stuff others have created in certain ways. The problem with it is, is a lot of times it's the the way the rights are written, and this even ties in a little bit into our last podcast, is they're written as negative rights. It's mm-hmm. that the creator has the right to stop others from doing this or has an affirmative right to do something, and then everything else is sort of left to the the, the populace as a whole. So we've got an issue of it's it's almost a law by uh, – it's acting, it's acting in the area of the law by omission. Yeah, and obviously everything people make is, is built upon what's come before, right? There's yep. that famous quote that's only really four plots, you know, ever been written, and, Sh- <laughs> and Shakespeare perfected them all, right? So, yeah. you know, and, and how many movies are just retelling prior stories? Yep. You know, you've got the Titan- Titanic, it's Romeo and Juliet on a boat. 
Yeah. You know? And then, uh, um, what was Avatar? It was Dances with Wolves in Space. Yeah. And then uh, my, my favorite version of Hamlet is uh, Strange Brew with Bob and Doug McKenzie. Have you ever <laughs> seen that? No, I, actually, I don't remember if I saw it years ago, but I know I haven't seen it recently. It's, it's ridiculous and silly, but it's basically Hamlet. It's even called Castle Elsinore, Elsinore Beer. Yeah. They play, basically play the part of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern yeah. and the hockey players that, you know. So, anyway, uh, these ideas are out there, and um, we, we decided that, the, that the, the Minecraft book raises really two main issues, one of which is pretty easy to dispose of, and that's trademark. And the other one, copyright, is much more complicated. So let's hit trademark first. They're clearly using the Minecraft name on the book, which is Microsoft now, their trademark. Um, And there's no question it's a trademark. It's clearly associated with the game. There's no question they have rights in this. Yeah, and and let's talk about what trademarks protect. It's a brand. It's it's to prevent people from being confused that they're getting something from Mojang or now Microsoft when, in fact, it's coming from somebody else. And your first thought might be, well, it says Minecraft. Why would you not think that? But they put right on the cover, not an official licensed Minecraft product. So you, you as the consumer are unnoticed that what you're buying is not coming from Mojang. And that's the thing that I think is very, very interesting. It's into one of the really interesting parts of trademark law, which is the idea of trademark law is to protect the consumer. What we're really trying to do in trademark is to say that when you buy a product which is sold underneath a trademark or you buy a service which is sold underneath a trademark, you know what it is you're getting. I always joke about it as in conjunction with it is it's, and this this comes from what you store for the company, that if you think about it, Coca-Cola is nothing other than caffeinated brown sugar water. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, when you go and you buy it, you expect that product to taste a very specific way, to have a very specific quality. And that's what trademark protects. You can look at it and say, chemically, it's going to be very, very similar to the vast majority of other colas out there. But at the same time, it's different. And people who want that specific flavor will look for that specific trademark. And that's the purpose of it. Just like McDonald's, right? You're not going, the, the value of the McDonald's trademark is not that I get really high quality food. It's that I know exactly what quality yep. food I'm getting no matter where I go. And it will taste the same if you go to a McDonald's anywhere in the world. Um, it will be similar quality. You'll have similar service. It will be a similar menu. Everything is that that trademark, that brand. And and people get you hear people talk about branding all the time. And as an attorney, I always like to get into it. As I always say, you know. When you talk about branding, what you're really talking about is trademark because branding is the idea of saying we have something which is trademark to us, and that's where the word trademark comes from. I mean, the idea of saying it's a trademark, it's associated with the fact that I'm giving you this product, I'm stamping it that it's my product, that it meets my quality criteria, it does what it does. And the law even acknowledges that in conjunction with trademark, where like if you're going to license somebody to use a trademark, you need to license the fact that part of the license needs to be that you can enforce the trademark and you can say whether or not they're actually abiding by your quality standards. And the license has to include the goodwill associated with the brain in the first yeah, place. Yeah, that's where the sale, but even some more than the license. Um, so with, with the trademark, obviously there's very little likelihood of consumer confusion, but there are other theories for trademark protection. Yep. One of them is called uh, dilution, which is where unchecked use of the mark uh, on, on products not associated or originating from the, the true owner of the mark, um, if it goes on long enough, can dilute the power of the mark because people will stop thinking that uh, the mark is is from that particular person. And it seems yep. to apply here, right? If, if there's just constant ripoffs and copycat books out there, uh, does that dilute the power of the mark. And I, I think the answer to that probably is Mojang's not selling books. They're selling video games. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the part of the question you get into in there, and I think it's a lot of the issue with dilution, is is it diluting the product? And what actually is the product? Is yeah. it a video game? Or is it, for lack of a better term, a property um, in conjunction with you know what Microsoft owns? And they may choose to publish books. They may choose to publish toys. They can make other things in conjunction with it. There obviously are licensed 
Minecraft products that aren't video games. And couldn't you argue that even a knockoff, like an unlicensed product like this, if anything, increases the market for the actual goods? That's, I think that's a common argument you get into a lot with people when they're talking about they don't want to do this, which is, I'm not hurting you. Yeah. In many respects, I'm helping you. But I think there's a key thing here to keep in mind, which is the law doesn't recognize that. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't matter sort of the fact that you're improving somebody else's market. The fact is that you're creating your own. Um, and that, that creating your own is trading off of their goodwill. And again, that's the idea behind trademark infringement, which is you have goodwill associated with the mark because you produce a quality product, you produce what people expect. Somebody else is now trading off of that and saying, hey, I'm going to produce something that that rubs off on, that you believe my product is good because of whatever it is. And that's, I think, the biggest thing you get into in conjunction with this is why is your son reading these books? Is he reading them? because it says Minecraft on the yeah. front and it's got zombies and creepers in yeah. it. Yeah, is it because it's a fascinating story or is it because it happens to have, you know, a, a creeper on the front on the front cover? Exactly. So if you take the exact same story and just swap the name out with something else, does he still want to read it? No, it will never make its way into my house. So yep. I, I think you're right. And I, I analogize to like the NFL. You can buy like simple blank keychains yep. and they cost about two bucks. You slap the Green Bay Packers on it and now it's a $12 keychain. Yeah. Why? Because... People are tribal. We want to be associated with our things that we love and parts of our identity, and people will pay a premium to have the Green Bay Packers on their keychain. Yep. Now, if you haven't figured it out yet, Ben's a Green Bay Packers fan. I am. I am an owner. <laughs> um, but the yeah, and I think that's the the real problem we get into in conjunction with this is it does feel like they're trying to purposely play. It feels off like of unfair this. competition, basically. Yeah. Like you just you you have a market for this that somebody else established. Somebody else put the time yep. and money into developing this game, developing this brand, and you're just you're just trading yep. off of it. Yet at the same time, I think you've got two other things coming out of that. One of which is that they're being very clear in the fact that this is not the product. Yeah, this there's is, no you know, and, there's no deception. Yep. And then the second thing I think you bump into into it, and I think this is where we're going to sort of go next, is what's wrong with the fact that they happen to set this in a fictional universe that already existed. Obviously, there are people playing Minecraft every day and building things in Minecraft every day and writing stories in Minecraft every day, but just by the very act of them playing it. Why can't they just record one of those stories and isn't that something they've created? And this is, this is where we're going to go eventually. We're going to have a whole podcast on fan fiction. But you basically have a copyright regime that's serving the functional role of trademark. In many respects, yeah. And I think it's it, one of the things that's interesting, and I know we've mentioned the paper that, it, that we did, I did before and sort of things in conjunction with that. But one of the things that I think was very interesting that I keep bumping into is oftentimes when you look into these things in fan fiction, you find trademark principles being used in copyright law yep. and copyright principles being used in trademark law by courts. And this bit of a crossover between the two of, wait, we, we see this problem that's a trademark problem, but we're going to enforce it under copyright. Or we see this thing that's a copyright problem, but we're going to enforce it under trademark. And that's one of the, I think, the biggest issues we get into in conjunction with this is exactly how does this fall? And I think that's what we're trying to say here is we're looking at these trademark issues. We can't necessarily point to a clear trademark issue in conjunction with this. Yet at the same time, we feel like we see trademark problems here. Um, but... Every one of those trademark problems seems to be addressed specifically by the way the, the, the book is written. Um, it's the kind of thing as they say, hey, you know, while we've, we've clearly played off of it, we're telling you explicitly we're not playing off of it. Yeah, and that's another question. Is this disclaimer enough, do you think, to get around the trademark issues? It seems like their lawyers at least thought it was because yeah. they published the book. Well, I think you also then get into the idea of it when you're getting into disclaimers is you get into the question of what does it mean for attribution versus what is copyright versus that's a, good a lot point. of these things with it. And, you know, in some sense, this is a disclaimer of trademark in many respects. But you could also look at it as arguably being a disclaimer of, of copyright rights. And I think that's where you, you, you bump into those ideas or at least an attribution of copyright rights of saying, hey, look, yes, this is my original work of authorship. But I'm giving credit 
credit to the Minecraft universe and the fact that it's set in there. The concern with that is, and it's very interesting because they actually recently did a study, it was earlier this year, in conjunction with this, having to do with people's opinions, and it was sort of non-IP related you know, individuals, of attribution and plagiarism versus copyright law. There seems to be a common misperception. I see that a yep. lot. In fact, we just I just did a CLE, if you guys don't know what that is, continuing legal education, we're required to do these as lawyers. And it was on a, it was on copyright law and a, a lawyer from a, a very prestigious East Coast law firm gets on and opens up by uh, copying a chart from Bloomberg and saying it's not copyright infringement because I've att- attributed Bloomberg. Yep. But Copyright's not about attribution. Yeah, it's and about copying. Really the key thing is that attribution. I mean, there, there's an attribution right, which happens to be in the copyright law, but it's not really the the nature of copyright. They're different things, and when you think about it, in many respects, plagiarism. Um, and what we think of as plagiarism, but I think most of us encounters our initial introduction to copyright because we encounter it in school. Yeah. And the idea that you have to follow plagiarism. Plagiarism doesn't really exist in the copyright law. You can very readily have something which is plagiarism but isn't copyright infringement, and you can very have something very readily have something which isn't plagiarism but is copyright I mean, infringement. Plagiarism is fundamentally about misrepresenting other people's ideas as your own. Yep. It's a form of academic dishonesty, but copyright has the idea expression dichotomy. Copyright protects the expression of an idea, not the idea itself. Yep. Almost by definition, plagiarism is not necessarily copyright infringement. Yeah, I think the real key that it gets into is it's, you know, in copyright infringement, it relies to have you copied something which the other person has the right to prohibit you from copying. And it, it ties into fair use, and I think this is really where it gets into, and we talked about fair use in the show, and at some point in time we're going to talk about fair use even more, just because I think so, a lot of these questions tie around fair use because it's such a difficult legal We could do an entire year of podcast just on yeah. fair use. Well, we might. You know, this becomes <laughs> popular and people want to talk about fair use. That's what most of our questions are winding up to being about. Um, but the, that's, I think, the thing that you really get into with so much of this is we've got these intertwined legal principles, and then we've got it intertwined with what we see in some sense a moral principle. I think plagiarism comes down to the idea of a moral principle. What does that really mean? Let's talk about where copyright lives in a video game because, the, like I said, there was a screenshot from the game on the front cover of this book. Yep. So th- this raises copyright concerns. So v- video games are weird. Uh, we have a, we do a little bit of video game practice in our in our jobs, and uh, we often are asked by video game publishers and programmers uh, how do they protect their video games, and it's it's actually pretty tricky to do because what they want to protect is usually how the game is played, yep. and that's really hard to protect. So we're not going to talk about that today, but let's talk about what we can protect. The source code is copyrightable yeah, as an easy. expressive work. I mean, if somebody's going to take your disc and they're going to make a, a copy yeah. of it, then yes, there's going to be copyright infringement. The problem is who has discs anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and how many people actually copy the exact files? The art files are obviously protected by... You know, copyright, the graphic art, the sound files are going to be protected. Um, now, an interesting question is, who is the author of these things? You, you may intuitively think, well, the company that makes the game is, but by default, absent uh, a written contract to the contrary uh, and, and the work made for hire doctrine, which we'll talk about in a second, the author of something is the person that makes it usually. Yep. So, you know, the subject of a photograph is not the author of the photograph. The person who snapped the, the camera is. Yep. Um, yeah, and that's an important thing to keep in mind is just, you know, who exactly is it? And that's defined in just the way copyright, the copyright law is written and everything else. And there's all sorts of interesting questions that have arisen out of that. For the example, the what happens if, you know, you have a painting painted by an elephant who's the author because an elephant is not allowed to be an author because that's it has right. to be a human. It has to be a human. But at the same time, the elephant clearly created the work. 
Yeah, and would you argue that a person trained the elephant to draw the picture, yep. and maybe that it's that person the yep. author? And then there's what was the case? They set up a camera in the woods, and yep. like a bunch of monkeys or something. There was a monkey got hold of, the, of the, the photographer's camera and took pictures with it. And, and became that was a famous the question. Picture. Yeah, of who exactly was the author in that? Because obviously nobody had trained the monkey. This was, a, I believe, a wild monkey, um, and the author hadn't. And I think necessarily planned this. The you know the human yeah. photographer hadn't necessarily planned for this kind of thing to occur. What 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 do you bump into? Who actually took that picture? Um, you know the camera can't be the author well, because the, the monkey's not human. It arguably can't be the author, and the human who arguably would be the author is arguably not the author because he wasn't really involved in it. Wasn't there a composer too who'd come in and sit down for a piano recital and then just not do anything? And the the quote unquote music was the sounds of the audience yeah, seven, losing its seven patience. Seven minutes or something. I thought was the name of the yeah. The, like or, like so. I mean. Th- is he the author of that? I mean, he didn't organize other than sitting there and and getting the people in the in yeah. the in the auditorium. He didn't really do anything. So. Although arguably he does write the music because he's the one who lays out the system for it to occur. True that. Um, so so some of these are easy. Um, you know, the author of the art files is whoever made the graphic art. The author of the audio files is whoever made the sound recordings. Um, and then there's a doctrine called work made for hire. And this provides essentially that when you do something that's copyrightable and you do it in the scope of your employment for a company, the company is considered the author as a matter of law, not you. And I always wondered about this because I worked in IT for 10 years before I went to law school. And not once did I sign anything <laughs> assigning my, my copyrights and the code I wrote to the companies I worked for. And I always found that curious. Like, wouldn't you want me to sign something saying you guys own all my source code? Well, I think legally one of those concerns with it is, is work made for hire requires a lot of very specific requirements. It does. And people don't think that. They tend to look at it and say, wait, I paid you for it, so it's mine. It requires and, an employment relationship, yeah. first of all. So independent contractors don't necessarily yeah. automatically apply. And, and again, it's also one of those things where you don't necessarily, just because you paid somebody for it doesn't necessarily mean you own the copyright in it. You may own the individual copy of the work that they created and for sale doctrine or something along those lines. But I think the thing, and I think for for purposes of this discussion, what we really just want to get into for Made for Hire is the company could be deemed the author if it's made as a work made for hire or if they've obtained it in conjunction with it. But it's not immediately clear under this work made for hire that they are. And this is where this gets interesting for video games. So a screenshot from a video game obviously is just a capture of a moment in time in the game. But who's the author of the screenshot? Obviously the player of the game is the one who decides when to take the screenshot, what elements are on the screen, how the how the shot is framed, um, they're using the art that was designed by somebody else. But those people who designed the the game and the art, they had no say in and yeah. what the user ultimately does in the game and and how they arrange the elements to and select the moment to take the picture. So, isn't there a strong argument that the player actually is the author of a screenshot? One can look at it and say, in many respects, the player taking a screenshot is no different than a photographer utilizing a camera. Exactly. That. You the know, game yes, becomes just a tool. Yeah, the, the game becomes a tool. The camera is a tool. There's no, I mean, I think there's no question under copyright law. The, the manufacturer of a camera does not own the copyright in the pictures taken. There's, no, nobody you know, would say that. Nobody would say that. Um, but yet, you now bump into, hey, I go out and I take a, you know, a photograph of a cityscape at night. There's arguably going to be copyrighted elements of statues of something else which may appear. Yeah, architecture. You can copyright architecture. architecture. You know, big and even saying sculptural works, paintings, murals, whatever might be in there. But nobody would question the fact that the photographer is the owner of the copyright in conjunction with this. Um, And that's what I think we bump into with this. Now, at the same time, 
the, only, the word only exists because of the fact that the person created it. There's this idea that there's sort of nothing extrinsic to the screenshot, nothing extrinsic to the game, which is part of the screenshot. And now we get into derivative works, too. So even if the player is an author of at least the screenshot, it's still not possible to have that screenshot that looks the way it does unless somebody has written the game engine that produces the images and unless somebody has designed the art files that yep. are shown on the screen. And there's actually an interesting case having to do in conjunction with this. And I'm trying to remember... I, I believe it was Doom. I don't think it was it was Quake, but it was one of the thir- the first person shooter games. Just a level design case. The other ones, yeah. That that basically there there was a group that that developed. They had a level design editor as part of the game. A number of people designed the um, the levels in conjunction with it, and then released and sold them on a CD, uh, so people could that buy might have their been levels. Duke Nukem. Um, I don't. I can't remember which game it was. To be quite truthful, it may have been Duke Nukem. Um, but the issue that bumped into it was is that was actually prohibited by the terms of use for the game. So that's a contract solution, yeah. basically. The problem with it is the court didn't find that. The court found it to be a copyright infringement. Um, and I'm and shocked, Kirk, that a court might have misunderstood <laughs> how copyrights work. But that's, I think, the thing you bump into in conjunction with it is it's, you know, when you say this is a copyright infringement, what exactly did they infringe the copyright to? Well, they infringed the copyright to the, the various game elements that appeared in the game. But again, those levels did not appear in the game. Yes, they obviously included game elements of, you know, this is what a doorway looks like, this is, you know, what the textures look like. But none of the actual game levels appeared in the actual game. Not, that's where you start getting into these kind of questions and the sort of real concern of exactly who owns the copyright in conjunction well, with And they're stuff. weird issues, too. So Minecraft, if you've ever played it, you know people can make some amazing things. Um, I've seen, you know, fully to scale Star Destroyers. Yeah. And, so they made the Death Star, didn't they? Oh, yeah. Someone made the Death Star. Uh, people have made functioning computers, all kinds of stuff. I wonder if you could infringe a patent that way. Anyway. Um, <laughs> future episode. Yeah, future episode. Uh, but there's, there's one particular uh, Minecraft server where they've basically recreated created all of Westeros from Game of Thrones in Minecraft. How they found people with this kind of time, I don't know, but, <laughs> but they, they, they did it, and it's out there. And so the question is, you know, nobody from Mojang did that. Uh, you can use custom skins in Minecraft to swap out the art files. So what, what of Mojang's copyrights would be infringed? Um, in, in a case like that, as far as the world design goes, yep. setting the source code aside. Yeah, it starts to feel at that point in time almost like... Like an talking, editor. Yeah, yeah, like an editor or it's, you know, yeah, you gave us a, a series of building blocks and all I've done is use those building blocks to create my own thing. Shouldn't I own the copyright and what's beyond the building blocks? Especially when you start talking about skins and things where... Yeah. Now these art files are gone. Like, this doesn't even look like original Minecraft. And those art files, those skins that are put in there may have been created by the person who created Westeros. Mm-hmm. Um, so really all they're using is the game engine. Um, now, admittedly, there may be some copyright issues having to do with the game engine, but yeah. when we're talking about just look and feel and appearance of it... But as far as a really screenshot, say, of yeah, that world, screenshot. if you've infringed anybody's copyright, it'd be HBO's because you're <laughs> replicating what the show looks like. Yeah, uh, and that's that's where I think you see, there's so much weirdness that sort of relies in conjunction with how do we deal with this because copyright is not well-defined as to exactly what it is that has the copyright when you start talking about something which is changeable. Yeah, and and I think it's partially a a historical artifact. You know, copyright was developed in the... A long time ago. I mean, seventeen early 1700s, the Statute right, of Anne, yeah, I think, in the UK was right. the first version. It's pre-the United States. Yeah, I mean, definitely pre-the United States, and it's pre-basically any modern you know media technology. And at the time, you're, you know, yeah, the, it was printing press. The state of the art was a printing press, right. And it was it was meant to fix the problem that by default, the, the publishers owned copyrights because they controlled the presses, and, uh, and, and the creative you know, authors of these works did not. And so the statute switched that so that authors would be the default owners yeah. of, of the works 
they create. But at the time, copyright literally just meant the right to make copies. Um, there's really nothing else to it. And since then, we've developed performance rights. And then you have you know the player piano. Now you have machines that can do things, uh, audio broadcasts. I mean, it, this 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 venerable institution has been wildly expanded to try to address protecting things that simply were, were not in the contemplation when yeah. it was. And, and I, I question sometimes whether it's the right institution to do that, especially online with the ease of copyright infringement now. I feel like it's a square peg for a round hole. Yeah, there's, there's been a lot of argument, and I think it's it, it, it hasn't been, I think, as much recently, but you know, previously as to what it is, which is, is copyright really the right law to be getting into these areas? And I think the reason it's gone there is because it's either what the party's asserted. That's what everybody's been doing for yeah, so long. You know, or the courts have sort of raised as it's the best one we have in yeah. conjunction with it. But yeah, you know, when you really go back as to what it was, copyright at that point in time with the printing press, prior to that, to make a copy, you had to copy by hand. Yeah. And and the interesting thing about it is in many respects there was no copyright at that point in time. Th- there was no protection for the idea You didn't of, need it. The you know, energy barrier in. to make copies yeah. was so high that nobody did it. Yeah. And Plus, so nobody then, was literate. Yeah. <laughs> and so then we created copyright to deal with that first energy barrier, which was the idea of, you know, we've now got this printing press, which suddenly allows you to make thousands of copies where previously you could have made one, you know, in that amount of time. Now we bump into the digital age, which says not only can you make thousands, I can you make, make infinite and copies with, for for zero dollars. Like yeah. I can just I can put it on my my BitTorrent stream and yep. and produce infinite copies with no energy involved at yeah. all. And so we sort of look at it and say, is copyright really the right tool? And I think there's there's a lot of arguments to say copyright is the only tool, um, and that as such it is the right. But tool. But is it an but effective tool? I don't think it really is anymore. Yeah, isn't it an effective tool? It's too expensive it to enforce, and it's. Yeah. You know, it, it contemplates a, a commercial competitor as the infringer yeah. who has the resources to pay a big judgment and will, and will be deterred from infringing. But the infringers today aren't competitors for the most part. They're consumers. Yeah, and that's, again, when you sort of jump down to it, it was to prevent one printing press and another printing press. Um, you know, they required the resource to have a printing press. Now everybody's a printing press. And, <laughs> and I think that's the, the thing you bump into in conjunction with this is we've got this democratization of printing. Um, and I think there's a lot of people out there that would say that's a very good thing for society, and and there's a, a very solid argument for that. But at the same time, legally, we have to catch up. And you know, the copyright law, I think, has been trying valiantly to try to catch up. But the pace at which copyrighted works are changing right now is causing problems. I mean, the law is slow. The change in law is slow. There's no it question is. about that. And the change in technology in this area has changed dramatically. I mean, it took us a long time to adapt to the photocopier, but we've now sort of adapted for, you know, copyright law to the photocopier and what that means and the danger of it. I mean, one of the ones, you know, and I remember we talked about this previously is the idea of when they used to sell, you know, the writable CDs. Yeah. And the assumption behind writable CDs is that people would actually say copy music illegally basically onto the yeah, CDs. Yeah, there was a deal struck there. You pay the yeah. higher premium for a music CD and then the, the levy goes to the, to, to, I think, ASCAP or BMI yeah. or somebody distributes it. But but then you can't be sued for copyright infringement for you that CD, but yeah. that doesn't work for a hard drive, right? Yeah. Because you can use it for all kinds of stuff. Yeah, and that's where you know, we saw these sort of creative solutions in conjunction with a lot of it, but right now we're having trouble. We just haven't found the creative solution yet. Um, well, for, for Minecraft, my, my hunch is that, I don't know, of course, but they get away with this screenshot because I think there's a decent argument that the person who took the screenshots, the author, um, but I, I just wonder if this kind of thing is even on Mojang's radar screen. And that, and that may be the biggest thing to sort of keep in mind in conjunction with this is a lot of these legal questions are potentially going to adjust, are never going to be determined. Well, in a case because like this, it's just not worth it. 
Yeah, are, are you going to go after the small-time bit publisher who's making children's books for six-year-olds? I mean, that, that's pretty heavy-handed. Yeah. Now, they may because what they're worried about is somebody going after the fact that somebody's going to produce future books, which you know become national bestsellers and everything yeah. else, so they have to you know go through and stop On it On the now. trademark side, you don't want completely unchecked use of yeah. your marks either. So. so, And the concerns of that sort of, you know, as we talked about, the idea of you know dilution or, or that one time we didn't get into tarnishment, um, of the idea that you know you may have to go after these just because you're worried about a secondary effect, not because it necessarily is a a pure you know trait. There's, there's a pure business reason to do it. It may be something that has to do with a future occurrence. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think we've we've exhausted that topic. Um, our our we, we're going to do a user question right or user a uh, listener question right now. Our we have one question uh, this week. It comes to us from George. George, you know who you are. I'm using your question from Facebook, so don't ever tell me that I've never done something for you. Uh, George writes, as a writer of fan fiction that's been read by millions worldwide, but unable to do anything else with it, I'd be particularly interested in hearing your podcast discussion on the legal intricacies of fan fiction. For example, taking underdeveloped characters from existing work and building them out into new storylines, etc. What do you think, Kirk? Um, I, I think that, you know, one of those things that it's, I'm talking about it, it's, I have a legal paper out there which addresses exactly the question of undeveloped characters from existing work and building them. I think the thing we're going to bump into is I'd love to answer your question um, as how does the old quote go? It, you know, in a year we might be able to get through enough podcast to actually yeah, this answer is the a, question. This is a, a, a rich field of topics. Yep. I think this will be a whole separate podcast just talking yep. about fan fiction. I think but we're it, definitely going to touch on fan fiction a lot to be quite yeah. truthful just because... Well, it's something everybody's into, right? If you're, if you're yep. a geek at some point, you can admit it to us. You have written something. Yeah, I think we've all written something which is set in a universe we didn't create. We've all written something Star Wars related. Um, we've all written, you know, something Game of Thrones related, I think, nowadays. It's whatever might be Harry Potter related. We can all name a universe that we've all worked something you in. I mean, I wrote it. my own Star Trek fan fiction when I was a kid. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, the thing that I think you get into and a thing that, that becomes very interesting in conjunction with fan fiction is this is an area where the law really doesn't know what to do. And where you have the interplay of a lot of different rights. You got the character copyright concept. You got the sequel right. You yep. got the derivative rights. There isn't even technically a sequel right. I mean, something we talk about, but even that is not yeah, acknowledged it's not, it's not, by the law. Yeah, like what, what that's based on is hard to say. And, and the interest we kind of alluded to this before, which is why I like George's question this week. The the interest that they're trying to protect with this is mostly a trademark interest that people are, are you know going to unfairly trade upon the goodwill built up at somebody else's expense. Yes, but we're talking about works which, in many respects, don't have. A trademark associated with them because the trademark yeah. isn't being used. Or and in the case of fan fiction, is, is there any really any risk? I mean, is anybody going to be concerned? But then you get into things like uh, the Mystere incident with, um, gosh, was it Warcraft, I think? Somebody wrote some, um, let's call it R-rated fan fiction okay. that Blizzard did not appreciate, and I think they suspended the person's account. Yep. And um, you know, there, there there are other reasons why a company may not want yep. you writing stuff set in their and universe. And that's, I think, the hardest thing we get into in conjunction with fan fiction, which is in some sense, it's a bit of a no harm, no foul type of thing, which is if everybody approves of it, then it's usually not a problem. But as soon as you start treading in a realm that somebody might not approve of, well, they may have a problem with that because they don't approve of it because they don't want that to be out there, whatever it may be, sort of the image of the company or tarnishing the brand, getting into trademark mm-hmm. sort of pieces. But as we get into tar- you know, tarnishing the brand and trademark sort of pieces, we're moving away from copyright. Yet most of what we're yep. talking about is copyright. 
I think you can see where we're going and why this is such a complicated subject. And, and again, I think the important thing to keep in mind from this, and I think it's something to just talk about, we probably are going to touch on fan fiction repeatedly in conjunction with this podcast. It has so many things. issues that just come up all over the place in yeah. IP. And a lot of them are very, very interesting legal questions that can show both the holes in IP law and some of the ways that it's working, I think, as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, that probably doesn't answer your question that well, George, but the, the, short, the short answer is, here be dragons. <laughs> is that arguably itself is a copyright infringement? Yes, indeed. <laughs> all right, well, that's all we've got time for today. Um, if you'd like to ask a question, we will read it on the air, possibly redacted, depending on what you say. You can find us on Twitter at LGGpod, or you can email us at LGGpodcast at gmail.com. I think we're getting a Facebook page set up, or we already have one. I'm yeah, not sure yet. Yeah, set up yet or not. Uh, we'll be out there. We will do the social media stuff, social networking stuff. Um, if you'd like to leave us a review, we would very much appreciate that. That helps people find us. That helps us uh, get our name out there and spread the word. Um, so leave us a review. Let us know what you think, especially if it's a good one. If it's not, then maybe you can keep your opinions to yourself. <laughs> uh, you can also find us on Podbean, Stitcher, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, that's it for this week. I think next time we're going to talk about... We've got a couple topics we're debating. We're thinking maybe copyright to the Klingon language... Yep. Uh, there's actually a case going on right now about that that overlaps into character copyright. Yep. So that's interesting, and then I'm not sure what's going to be for episode 3 slash 6 beyond that. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's sort of accurate to Star Wars. We weren't exactly sure what was going to happen in episode 3. Oh, wait, we knew exactly what was going to happen in episode <laughs> 3 because everything from 1 and 2 was leading up to it. Just get out, get Invader in the suit, man. That's all it was. <laughs> all right, uh, that's it. Thank you all for listening. Take care. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded at Cool Fire Studios in St. Louis, Missouri. 